What's it take to survive in global business today? More than a lot of companies have. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the 100th episode of the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. magic word is resilience. It describes the ability of a company to protect against any number of potential supply chain disruptions from natural disasters to port strikes, system congestion, and even terrorist attacks. Not every event is predictable, of course, but at the very least, companies should possess the strength to bounce back from adversity as quickly as possible. So, at a time when supply chain risks are so high, how can businesses defend themselves? And why are there so many that are lagging in that effort? My guest today is MIT professor Yossi Sheffi, who directs the school's Center for Transportation and Logistics. He's here to share some insights from his new book called The Power of Resilience, How the Best Companies Manage the Unexpected. Professor Sheffi has written about resilience before, but recent developments in global supply chains motivated him to revisit the topic. He'll talk about what companies should be doing to guard against a level of risk in the supply chain that has never been higher. So here is my conversation with Professor Yossi Sheffi. Yossi Sheffi, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Now, you are the author of a previous book called The Resilient Enterprise, Overcoming Vulnerability for Competitive Advantage. So you have written on the subject of resilience quite a lot before. Why now? Why a new book? The original book was motivated by 9-11. After 9-11, I tried to see how our companies ready for an attack or any other disruption. So I, at the time, I interviewed dozens and dozens of companies. And out of these interviews and research and uh, literature review came the book. About 10 years later, many of the companies that I talked to got in touch with me and started saying, you know, things have changed. The threats are actually more serious, more problems are taking place. And by the way, we are also getting better. A lot of the things we are doing, we would not have done 10 years ago. We are now more structured about it. We have processes about it. You need to write another book. And when I thought about it, I included in the new book a lot of the themes that uh, were not included in the first one. Like there's a lot of emphasis on cybersecurity. There's a lot of emphasis on uh, corporate social responsibility. So there's emphasis on also different types of disruptions and different framework for thinking about them. Have you changed your mind or your outlook in any way on the issue of resilience in the last 10 years? If anything, I became more of an evangelist on this. Uh, When I visit companies, Now, what happened is the companies who want to talk about it usually are companies who are very good at risk management and think about resilience a lot, companies like uh, Cisco or Intel or others. 
Uh, I'm trying also to visit a lot of companies who are not taking seriously about this and not taking it as seriously as they should and try to, uh, to point out to them. I also, what I do is uh, I give presentation at uh, many board meetings because I try to impress upon companies who invite me, of course, that this is a board responsibility to make sure that there is a process in place because this is something that uh, in most companies, the CEO, the senior management, it's not going to worry day to day about it because they have lots of other things to worry about. And if nothing happened, then nothing happened and who should have worried about it? But, of course, if... Uh, this is something that the board should worry about companies being ready for this. But given the recent events that we have seen in, in, in recent years, I find it almost shocking to think that there are companies out there who aren't taking this issue seriously enough. Why do you think that is? Why are, why are certain companies remaining ignorant or unwilling to, to move forward in the way they need to in order to build truly resilient organizations? By and large, it's well known that nobody gets promoted based on cost avoidance. So building resilience, you simply avoid cost. And, and it costs money to build it. It costs resources, it costs uh, management attention. And if nothing happens, then you just wasted money. It's like paying too much for uh, insurance, even though one can absolutely show that it's better to build resilience than to... Uh, than just uh, uh, pay for insurance. First of all, insurance is not going to cover a lot of the things that uh, uh, that resilience will cover. And second, you can resilience help you become flexible and ready for just demand changes and other changes in the marketplace that have nothing to do with the disruption, to be able to respond better to the marketplace. But going back, why do companies? Why do some companies not take it seriously? I shouldn't say when I say not take it seriously. I mean every company put the check marks in the right place. But there's a difference between putting the check marks in the right place and being really ready and thinking about it. And the companies who don't do it, it's because, look, the tenure of every CEO is, what, three years? If you are the CEO of the next company, three years, four years, uh, CEO, CFO, chief supply chain manager, whatever, uh, chief supply chain officer, then you can take your chances. And if nothing happens, then you did not invest in it. Your stock goes up. Everything is good. Hmm. If, if, and by the way, and by the way, if something does happen, in many cases you can argue this is force majeure. Everybody else is in the same boat. Especially if it's a big thing like Japan, like Thailand, like the big thing that happened, you can say, ah, you know, everybody's in the same boat. Some. <laughs> Some, yeah. some people, however, I should say, in many cases, you find companies, and I don't want to name names here, but you find companies that their sole worry is they're not going to be worse off than the competition. So they look at a general disruption like, uh, you know, flood or earthquake or hurricane, and they just want to make sure that they are not worse off than others, rather than think about this is an opportunity to shine. There's an opportunity to show that, like, you know, the, the biggest example is Walmart after Katerina. Walmart not only was helped thousands of people, Walmart whole image changed 180% because of their, what they did in Katerina. 
Yeah, but while while some of these companies are are metaphorically sleeping, you describe in the book the trend of rising vulnerability on all sides of the supply chain. What are the factors out there that are causing rising vulnerability? Oh God, let me count the ways. <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, ex- increasing customer expectations, which means if you are not in a position uh, or in a position not to supply your customers. First of all, they expect you to supply. They expect the product to be on the shelf. They expect the car to be the dealer. They expect what they expect. If you don't have it, it is too easy to go somewhere else. If you don't have it in your supermarket, go to the other guy's supermarket. So both customer expectations are high and competition is very high. Now, on top of this now, we got long supply chains, longer and longer supply chain. We got, you know, because of globalization, we got... Many lead times are long and involve a lot of players. So it's not only that the lead time are long, but there are many, many players along the supply chain. And one thing goes wrong and they can, you know, the, uh, the chain doesn't work. Then there's a lot of new, um, when I say new, more in the last 10 years than any time before, like corporate social responsibility. It's now become a case where let me explain the dilemma. If you think you protect, you want to protect yourself against, say, supplier goes out of business, so you'll have more than one supplier, let's say, if you can afford it, more than one supplier supplying a certain part. As you have more and more suppliers, however, the risk of um, bankruptcy of a supplier goes down, but the risk of corporate social responsibility goes up. Because let's say if, if instead of having a 1,000 suppliers, you have 2,000 suppliers now, any one of them, now you have one, any one of 2,000 that gets caught up with sweatshop, with child labor, with uh, polluting the environment, you, the OEM, you, the brand owner, will get the brunt of the attack, not the supplier somewhere in the bowel of China. I've never heard it described that way. I've always heard it from the standpoint that the more suppliers you have, the more resilient you are because you're not going to get shut down by a disaster that occurs to one supplier. But it's interesting to see that additional suppliers can also bring additional risk. What an interesting observation. In many cases, you find out that you simply shift risks. It's very hard to totally eliminate risk. In many cases, it's just the risk is is different. You protect against one thing, a supplier, for example, if quality problems, supply or supply goes down and you open yourself to something else. So now you have to invest a lot more in a code of conduct and auditing and all this. And if you don't do it, you take the risk. So there are many cases described in the book where you exchange one risk for, for another. But but it may be better off. Maybe it may be by and large lower risk or maybe you have a better way of dealing with it. Well, there are so many different things that can go wrong. And you talk in the book about the exercise of assessing the likelihood of various types of events, of assigning probabilities, of creating charts that kind of give you a sense of that. But I'm wondering how possible it is to truly do that, because it seems like so many companies are fighting the last battle. They're protecting themselves against what happened before, because that's what they know. We're going into the future. How do you assess probability or likelihood of something that you never experienced before? Yes, that's a very good question. And the answer is you don't, because what happens is the following. There are basically two types of event that you can think about. One event for which you assign probability. What are the events for which 
uh, you can assign probability. These are things that have there's a historical record. So if you're talking about hurricane, you're talking about earthquake, you're talking about flood, you can actually assign probabilities to this. That's how insurance, you know, does its business. However, when you have what Nisim Taleb called Black Swan or Donald Rumsfeld called the unknown unknown, they can things that come from left field that not only you never experienced, neither of your competitors ever experienced, nobody in your industry ever experienced. The idea that in Japan, one of the countries that's most used to protecting itself against earthquake, you'll have earthquake and tsunami and a radioactive fallout. Nobody is prepared for this. Nobody was prepared for this. The fact that the entire hard disk drive industry in Thailand would be washed out, nobody expected it. In even other things, like uh, remember the if you're in the automotive business, the Evonik uh, explosion, there was a plant in uh, Germany that uh, had an explosion and was out of commission for several months, found out that the entire automotive industry depend on one type of plastic that this plant was making. So it was making over 50% of the world supply of this plastic, and there was no capacity anywhere else. So you find out things that you did not uh, expect. For these things, so you prepare for, for these two types of event differently. Event that you can imagine and think about probabilities and think about what might be the range of outcomes, how bad it's going to be. You can drill. You can prepare what Cisco calls playbook. You can prepare processes for deal with it mm-hmm. if they happen. Then there is the stuff, the unknown unknown of the black swan. And for this, you need to develop general resilience. So the, the ability to respond to anything. In the book, I describe it, but it basically means, for example, the number one thing is to know who to call. Who is Who should be on your emergency team? Who are the people who have both the depth of knowledge and breadth of experience to be able to look across a complex manufacturing process and say where we should intervene? Who are the people in procurement and engineering who know all the suppliers and know some alternative suppliers, even though they never use them? These are the people that, should, and, and also people who are willing to work 24-7 and all of that. These are the people who should be in your emergency management center. All of these things, preparing an emergency management center, being able to have all the communication tools. So if something goes down, you can still talk to people. Being able to work following the sun. You know, if you are a, uh, a multinational and something happened when it's middle of the night in uh, San Jose, that your people in Shanghai can pick up and run the worldwide response. And also, very important is detection. What we had in the last, not even 10 years, the last five years, there are many software companies that started developing alert system that if something happened, one of the tricks when something happens, especially something you do not expect, is to know that it happened. Because it usually can take days when there's confusion and you don't know what's going on until you understand the magnitude of a problem. And I have many examples in the book. So what you want is to have some of this software installed so you can relatively quickly find out the extent of the damage and start preparing the response. So that's the, there's actual software that will do that. That's a, that's a technological side of resilience. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In the book, I describe about 10 such systems. Uh, some companies develop it on their own. IBM, Cisco have their own. And there are some third parties that uh, give it that. There are companies like uh, NC4 and others that give you 
a stream of any event around the world. There's an accident somewhere, fire somewhere. The trick is not to, just to take this. The, the, the specialized software takes this information and overlays it with a bill of material of a company and says, okay, if something happened in XYZ, this is what it means. It means there are two suppliers in the area and this is what they supply and this is the, cost, the product that it goes into and this is the customers who use this product and this is the value at risk. So it's convert the stream of just event to something that can be actionable. You referenced the Cisco playbook, uh, which I'm sure at least starts with what you said. Page one has got to be who to call, right? When you walk into a company for the first time to talk to them about resilience, how many of them can hand you that playbook and take it off the shelf and say, here it is, other than Cisco, other than maybe Intel or something like that? Is it common or is that not quite done yet? My problem is that I have a biased sample. Companies that uh, have such plan and think about it are more likely to talk to me because nobody wants to appear on the page of a book from MIT saying, these people don't know what they're doing. So it's, I, I have a bias sample, obviously. So it's very hard for me to tell you what do the companies who don't do anything do. Now, there are two types of general themes. There are companies who invest more in planning and preparation and there are companies who invest more in response. Uh, and these are the two, for example, Intel, Cisco invests a lot in preparation. General Motors, by the way, responded very well to some of the uh, disruption, invest more in, in response. They also, of course, plan, but they invest more in, in, in the response capability. What do they do when something happens? So you look at different companies, look at it differently. When it comes to the unknown, unknown aspect, though, response has to be the priority. Of course, of course. But, for example, having a communication in place, having several lines of communication, what happens if electricity is down and, and you cannot connect on the internet? Do you have a, a satellite phone? Do you have batteries? Do you have, you know, the simple thing. What about the war room? A number of companies employ that as a, as a tactic. Is that a good way to go? It's um, a very good way to go because you need the number one thing is communication and coordination. And having a, now a war room does not have to be physical. It can be virtual. If the internet is you know, working, everything is fine, you can run it virtual. But uh, it's a very good idea to have a lot of expertise in one place that people can communicate with each other and talk to each other. In many cases, I know in the case of Cisco, for instance, and maybe even Intel, it, it was a physical place when something happened, right? That people did, as to the greatest extent possible, congregate in a physical place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. In, in yeah. GM, for example, not only they congregate in in, in physical place in, uh, in Detroit, but they have a war room like this around the globe. So they have several, one in Europe, one in, uh, one in Latin America, one in uh, Asia, and, and they communicate with each other. But um, yeah. the... The main one was in Detroit. But you know what they say about the best laid plans. You can have your playbooks, you can have your war rooms, you can have all that, but how do you know if it works? So to what extent should companies be undertaking simulations, drills, either virtual or, or actual? Uh, what do you propose or what do you recommend in that area? Nothing works better than drills, of course. Drills, simulation, desktop exercises, red team, all of this. When I was at Intel, they, they sent me to Israel. Because they said the best risk management plan that they have is in Israel, which... Well, that's understandable. <laughs> 35 seconds as the missile fly from the Gaza Strip. They have a huge interplan. They do weekly exercises. 
And every month they do exercise that is very, very real with, uh, you know, um, smoke grenades and stuff like this. And they have a team. They have a, a team that had volunteers who some of them are engineers, some of them are, you know, uh, cleaners, whatever it is. And they also have some ways that, they, that the clean rooms are built and all this and the way they even build the whole plant that with this in mind. But they drill weekly. And these are serious drills. So companies do, do drills. Not every company. Many companies do it quarterly or annually. But it's better to drill than not to drill. Let me give you an example. When we were in grade school, people did not say, let's now talk about fire. What do you do in case of fire? No. You had to take all the kids, if you were the teacher, down, you know, out of the building because they had to see what it feels like to get out of the building. So there's something about actually exercising this, exercising evacuation. At MIT, for example, and other universities, there are exercises for shut yourself in place when there's a shooter on campus. It's unfortunate, but... It is. So at MIT, we have a system that goes to all our emails and phones and everything. There's an alert. There's an alert that goes to the community if something happens. We are told ahead of time, of course, when there's a drill. So a a best practice, definitely, among companies who are truly resilient. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another another aspect that's so important, you mentioned the phrase peer into the tiers. And I think you're talking (laughs) about multiple, multiple tiers of suppliers. And you yourself point out that when you have these additional suppliers, and we've seen so many examples lately of things going wrong far up the chain with the OEM saying, I had no idea my product was being made in that factory, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you get your arms around this idea of visibility, multiple tier visibility? With difficulty. (laughs) How do you Mm. do it? The problem is when you get to tier uh, three, four, five, six, you are dealing with people whom you are not their customers. They don't even know you. Not in you don't know them. They don't know you. They they send they sell to somebody else who sells to somebody else who sells to you some part, and they make parts for many companies. So they are not uh, aware of you. And you come and talk to them, and you want to make sure that they, for example, don't pollute the environment or don't do clear cutting or don't I don't know do anything as bad. And they say, "Who the hell are you?" But let me give you the other side. Nothing is so simple. If you have a disruption, I'm talking about physical disruption, and deep in the supply chain, in tier four, five, six, three, four, five, six, you actually have more time to react because it takes time. There's a lot of inventory between you and that supplier. So you do have more time to react. So it, it is much more difficult, of course, to find out what's going on with deep suppliers. And in fact, I was... Uh, and talking to Intel, who had to find out what's going on with uh, conflict minerals, and they had to go to tier 12 in the supply chain to find out what's going on. Oh, my goodness. And they- yeah, and spe- speaking of Intel, we're almost out of time, but I, I just really want to ask you this. You quote Intel's Andy Grove, who said, only the paranoid survive. Yes. Do you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, look, it's not only Andy Grove. Talk about uh, Darwin. The species that survive are the species that can adapt and change and look at danger and do something about it. So 
companies that think that there's something bad that might happen and how do we respond and what do we do about it are the companies that will survive. Well, the new book is called The Power of Resilience, How the Best Companies Manage the Unexpected from MIT Press. We will link to the publication source uh, in our show notes. Yossi Sheffi, I want to thank you so much for being with us and talking to us about this critical issue. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, and I appreciate the interview. Thanks. That was my conversation with MIT professor Yossi Sheffi, talking about supply chain risk, resiliency, and managing the unexpected. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you on episode 101.